Since the time of the Enlightenment, perhaps no idea has remained as resonant or felt continually as embattled as the idea of progress. Through natural catastrophe and human-made atrocity, we have been called time and again to harness our energies toward action that will improve our lives individually and collectively. And time and again, we have despaired over our inability to progress. We have asked whether there is something in human nature that actually prevents us from truly moving forward. For some, progress is not determined by humans, but through appeals to God or to higher forces. And for others, a faith in progress through human action, whether it be through politics or through culture, is just naive. Progress has a lot of disbelievers. In this episode, we ask artist Thomas J. Price and author Steven Pinker how we might think about progress now. Is progress available to all? Or is it zero-sum? Must one group's progress come at another's expense? Who is allowed to progress and to represent progress, and who's not? And how do we even begin to measure progress? Is it just a goal that keeps on moving? Welcome to Edge of Reason. A new limited series podcast produced by Atlantic Rethink, the Atlantic's branded content studio, in partnership with Hauser & Worth, a home to visionary modern and contemporary artists. Each week, we transcend the boundaries of time and thought, channeling the spirit of the Enlightenment to delve into the obsessions that underpin the work of some of today's leading artists. This week, we're speaking with Thomas J. Price, a trailblazing British sculptor born and raised in Southeast London, whose works transcend form, capturing societal perceptions and challenging our views on Black identity while offering a unique lens to view the complexities of today's world. And also joining us is Steven Pinker, the author of the 2018 book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, and a psychology professor at Harvard University, where he conducts research in visual cognition, psycholinguistics, and social relations. Thomas, I want to start with you. You're known for making these beautiful, monumental sculptures of Black people, some of which are 9, 12 feet tall. And then you make these oversized busts and you put them on pedestals. I'm curious, what caused you to work in such a large-scale way? And how did people react when they first saw them? It was quite a long process to get to the figuration. I began my sort of inquiry throughout my practice, looking a lot more at sort of, I guess, what would be known as like abstract works, um, video works, works we looked at, patterns of light and sound, and basically the internal. So like they're trying to get inside the minds of people and trying to recreate the sensory experiences that I was experiencing and seeing and if I could place those in front of people and see if they could actually uh, feel the same thing, see if I could recreate that sensation in someone else. And it wasn't until I had done a few of these that I started to look at the, the visual side in terms of the external elements. So what happens if you know we, we use a representation of a person? So trying to use something which looked very familiar, i.e. the person, a, a face, and use that as a strategy, ultimately, to, to kind of directly connect people to what was in front of them that I was placing in front of them, um, and trying to get them to sort of ask questions. 
because everybody feels sort of able to to say something about or to comment upon what somebody looks like. And it's this kind of running in tandem with my own experiences that every time I'd show work, um, the identity of the artist and my identity was was placed on top of that work. And so race became a part when I started to show um, actual figures, the first figures being white and all the conversations about their mental state. And as soon as I sculpted and presented an animation of a black individual, the conversation became about race. And so as a young student, that was something that I had to sort of take on board as quickly as I could, to be honest. Mm. It took me a little while, but that's when I realized I was sort of running a parallel conversation, one which talked very much about, at the core of it, what it means to be human. And the other part was, what does it mean to be human and have to deal with other people's sort of limitations, expectations placed on you based on what you look like? We should specify to our listeners who can't see you, right, that you're biracial. Were you surprised that people were viewing the sculptures that you were making in terms of race? I think I was um, blissfully naive um, in terms of the art world at that point. You know, I was I was showing the sort of the the bounty of of the experiments I've been carrying out. All these experiments in terms of physiognomy, the proportions of a face. What happens if you shift the angles of eyes? What happens if you if you sort of adjust the curve of a mouth or the placement of ears, the the size of a forehead? All these kind of things that were kind of connected to this pseudoscience in terms of the things that we're sort of entrenched in our thinking as I've, I believe as you know as people you, you you know what someone's like character wise based on what they look like these characters were were actually fictional characters they weren't necessarily taken from life that's right so i was using these kind of fictionalized or sort of um, physiognomy experiments um these sort of propositions as to uh, character ultimately and trying to prompt and test audiences and so for me it wasn't about race at all at that point it wasn't until I, I showed the first animation of a, of a black man that race became visible. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, and so I wanted to use like a fictional person to try and generate or create a real sense of, of a human moment of thinking and, and presence. Um, and then when I went larger with the scale, so kind of nine feet and now 12 feet tall, it was really about kind of, a, again, a kind of duality of the, the psychological impact of that scale on the viewer, the kind of negotiation of that relationship between the represented individual and the viewer's sort of sense of themselves and and how scale, when it comes to that physical manifestation, that physical kind of presence, it flavors or it puts into context all the kind of other visual information you have in terms of expression, pose. Now, of course, your work is being seen in this very fractious context. Like since 2020, we've seen calls to remove Confederate statues here in the US. And in England, there's been a movement to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes under the Rhodes Must Fall movement. You decided not to put your figures on horseback, like pointing a sword at somebody, right? They're at rest or they're in thought or they're putting on their hoodies or they're just staring at a phone. You know, I didn't want these my sculptures to just be another version of what we've already seen. So they're not about now. We too can be just as powerful as these men from history. It's about let's let's actually not take for granted all these statues, all these monuments of so-called powerful men from history. Let's actually look at what they're doing and why they're there, and actually kind of wake up to them because they're all around us, mm. and we sort of reinforce their legitimacy by not saying anything. You know, I think it's very interesting that you know a lot have been pulled down, or there's conversations about them now. But you know, for a long time, you know, I've been doing this for 
20 something years but for a long time you know there was we 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 wanted to be up there we wanted to be on the on the plinth and you know my my figures the large figures stand on the ground because they share the ground with us so you know as i say like you know one of the works is called reaching out you know the 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 the, the artistic concept is about reaching out to the audience reaching out to the viewer as opposed to yeah kind of creating something which looks out over them and 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 says you know you're not as good as me let's get steven pinker in here now Stephen, you're an expert in cognitive science and cognitive psychology, and you are driven to answer the same kinds of questions that Thomas is pursuing in his work. You've written a book called Enlightenment Now, and it speaks to the question of progress and human nature. How did you come to be so invested in these ideas? The Enlightenment thinkers were themselves amateur cognitive psychologists, woven into their political philosophy and their moral philosophy were assumptions about what makes people tick. And I'm a person who believes that there's such a thing as human nature. I don't think we're blank slates that are just written on by the environment and parents and culture. I think that we come into the world with certain motives, certain learning styles, certain ways of conceptualizing the world. And I always had to deal with the the squeamishness that many people felt about the very idea of human nature, that maybe it confines us to the status quo. You can't change human nature. And so that there uh, may be a reactionary coloring to the idea of human nature. Uh, And I think a lot of the pushback against specific theories in linguistics and cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology comes from people's fear that, oh, you're saying that there's, uh, there's no point in trying to make us better off because war is in our genes and so we'll always have war and, uh, and so on. So I have pushed back against that pushback, first of all, by saying that human nature is a complex system. There's a a lot going on inside the skull. And yeah, I think we do have some rather ugly motives, but we also have better angels, as Abraham Lincoln put it, better angels of, of our nature. We also have a capacity for empathy. We have a capacity for self control, delayed gratification. We have a capacity for reason, cognitive processes that allow us to try to solve problems. And so, yeah, we've got human nature as the problem. Human nature is also the solution because we have these faculties of reason and empathy and self-control that can, uh, if the culture promotes them, can push back against our, our, our inner demons and all the forces of nature that are trying to grind us down. Now, that that's a theory. That's a, a reason why progress could happen, why a progressive agenda and a belief in human nature are perfectly harmonious. But the question is, can it work? Has it happened? And so that, in order to flesh out the idea, I had to say, not only is there scope in human nature for progress, but it, it's actually taken place. And indeed, in just about every measure of human well-being, there has been progress since the Enlightenment. We live more than twice as long. A majority of people are literate. It used to be a luxury of an elite. We're less likely to get killed or injured in street crime. We have concepts that would have been almost inconceivable a couple of centuries ago, like universal human rights for all races, for both sexes, for for uh, all religions. Fewer of us starve to death, fewer women die in childbirth, uh, more children survive, uh, survive childhood. So uh, no matter how you look at it, we really are better off than we were 300 years ago. How come? It's certainly not the case that the universe is trying to make us better off. Quite the contrary, the forces of nature are, are, are trying to crush us. And 
given an unforgiving universe, how did we manage to double our lifespan? Well, it's because we applied ingenuity to the goal of improving lifespan. We invented antibiotics and sanitation and synthetic fertilizers so we could grow more food and many other innovations that have given us the gift of extra life and extra prosperity and ex extra safety. That's, uh, I suggest, a, a gift of the Enlightenment. Thomas, we've heard Stephen discuss his idea of progress. How would you define progress? Ooh. I think progress for me is more of a feeling than anything. I, I think it's kind of an everyday experience. So, you know, because if you zoom out from, from numbers, it depends on like the sample group or where these, these statistics are being taken from. I've sometimes referred to myself as a humanist artist. Progress for me is it's, it's more of a personal thing. And it's, and it's based on, I guess, the, the experiences that I have, the stories I hear from people and the things that I see. It's, it's a difficult one because I, I think you need a reference point. And I think our, our memories sort of shift, you know, as soon as progress is made, there, there's a new baseline perhaps that we, we then reference against. So it might feel like progress is never quite being made because we get used to the, the higher standard that we, we are at or that we, you know, we've got to. One element of my practice is, you know, this, the, the element of race within that. And I've always thought that, you know, when that's not actually talked about, when that's not even a, a feature, when that's not a, a, an element which is commented upon, that I'll be able to see that progress has really been made because then we will be looking at each other as, as human beings. But, you know, I, I'm pretty confident within my lifetime that that won't be the case. But um, I think progress is, yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing if you're not working on statistics and you're trying to look at, that, uh, look at experience. Um, progress can feel like nothing or it can feel like it's, you know, hugely um, progressed. So sometimes it's, um, it's a fickle thing, perhaps. Uh, can I add something? I just uh, Thomas said something that uh, that I, uh, I'd just like to corroborate because half apologetically he considers himself a humanist artist, but I think that's that's dead on. That's exactly right, and for the reason that we've mentioned, namely, a lot of art traditionally was not particularly humanistic in the sense that it glorified heroes and gods, almost a kind of a you know, Nietzschean Superman as the ideal, the, the the guy on the horse with the sword or the uh, gorgeous Greek gods. The idea of taking an ordinary person. And to put us in the position of beholding a human being in all their ordinariness, but with the little twist of them being monumental in scale and, and cast out of bronze, the, the material that used to be reserved for, for heroes. Uh, Thomas, forgive me. It's, I think it's all, must always no. I'm, I'm loving for, this <laughs> for an artist to have their 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 work uh, explained by a, a, a dilettante, a, a neophyte. But it seems to me that there is a statement there that ordinary humans are worthy of our our veneration. It's not just about generals and and, and God. So that's it's almost the ultimate humanist statement. Thank you. It seems to me one of the things that just occurs to me as a naive viewer looking at your your gorgeous sculpture is. Um, when I see them, like I see the, the the young woman looking at her phone, the first thing that comes into my mind isn't, oh, that's a, a, a woman of African descent, African-American or, or British African. It's just like, it's a person. I mean, well, yeah, now that I think of it, she does happen to be African-American or Afro-British, but you know, everyone is of some race. The first thing that pops into mind is just the ordinariness as a human being. But then, of course, I flip back and forth and you can't not. You think, is that meant to be of an African person or is it just a person and you know, everyone's of, of some mixture of races? 
uh, I, tell me if I'm off base thinking that that kind of interplay, do you think of these figures in terms of their race or are they just human beings? <laughs> I mean, that you picked up on exactly the kind of scenario that, that happened. So, you know, when I first started making figurative works, it wasn't about race whatsoever. I was creating sort of notions of character, kind of psychological moments of people that I had observed. So I take a kind of a, a real kind of impression I'd had of a, a psychological moment that I've kind of witnessed. And then I would try to recreate that using the, the most kind of potent recipe of the physical parts I could, and then present that to an audience and say, what do you think? You know, what, what's this person feeling? And as I said, it wasn't until initially I'd sculpted a, two white characters. The audience were like talking about the psychological impact of those people. And I wonder what they're feeling. And it reminds me of my father and all these kind of different, very connected takes on, on what they were looking at. And then when I presented the first visual representation of a, of a black person, the first things were about the race. And, and it kind of closed down the conversation within a predominantly, almost exclusively white audience. And so my kind of recognition of that moment, that awkwardness almost, and, and my sort of naivety of not realizing that was going to happen within that environment kind of made me want to, well, what happens if I do it again? What happens? Because I'm just sculpting people. So what happens if I place another one of these, these kind of characters in front of people? Because maybe I got it wrong the first time. Maybe I'm just overreacting here or seeing something that's not there. And the same thing happened again. Now, when I stepped into the realm of, of the sort of the very formalized uh, way of, of the monument, you know, the, which, which are connected to all these different um, emotions that people have about nation and, and history and their versions of history and their place within those histories and those nations. When you start to make them think again, there's some real resentment and resistance within, within those people that want things to just stay as they are. Um, and you have other people who suddenly see the opportunities to actually be visible and be part of of society in a way that they didn't even know they weren't part of. You know, like I didn't, until I'd seen young black children interacting with some of my sculptures when I was installing them, I didn't realize the significance for other people outside of myself in terms of seeing those types of characters. So race was a big part of those children's experiences of those works. But in terms of my reasoning on my strategy initially, anyway, for presenting these, particularly the kind of the, the sculptures about statues, it, it was about questioning the kind of the, the formal elements. So the, the idea of this, the, the singular historical individual whose story we're going to tell again and again and again, as if it's fact and, and aggrandize, and we're going to dress them in a certain way and we're going to place them high up on a plinth and, you know, and people are going to congratulate them for their service and their history. And we're going to you know, you know, look up to them and, and tell their story forevermore. That for me was the, the thing that needed to be questioned more than, than race. So race for me, is a part of it. Clearly, it's continuing to be a part of it, and perhaps even a more important part as as sort of things in, in society, in particular in America, I think, kind of progresses. You know, I think there's a bit of a, there's a lot. You know, we talked about pushback before. I think there certainly is pushback right now because that's my experience of life. When I have a conversation with people and I'm talking to them, and suddenly they they a snippet drops in, and it's about my race, and I thought we were talking as people. For me, that's my experience of of life. So. It's about how do you incorporate the things that you understand? How do you incorporate your experiences and the ways that you've learned to navigate the world? How do you share that with people so that they can connect with you and the work based around those elements? How do you create something which is sort of compelling in its kind of in its realism of experience and the honesty of that? 
because I think that extends itself to whatever race you are, you know, because I think these ultimately the characters within these sculptures are expressing themselves without being performative. And I think that is a thing that every human understands, you know, this the thing that we present to people and then the thing that we feel or perhaps sometimes fear that we are. And I think these sculptures are kind of celebrating, you know, being as you are. Mm. Thomas, one of the things that you have done over the last couple of years is you've installed uh, statues, monuments to the Windrush generation. Uh, the Windrush generation being, of course, uh, that generation of Black immigrants from the Caribbean uh, to uh, the UK. People are, are are talking now about taking down this statue still of Cecil Rhodes. Um, how do you want people to be able to see your statues uh, in a hundred years? Or do you want people to be able to see your statues in a hundred years? This idea of permanence is an interesting one <clears throat> when it comes to statues and monuments. And you know, I always try and say, you know, the, the works I make are these are sculptures about statues. And I try and create this sort of difference in, in definition because mine are questioning the things that statues and monuments have been used to do. And, you know, I reinforce these kind of official narratives. For me, it was incredibly important that the the Windrush sculptures that I made were not exotic, and you know, I wanted I wanted them to be people so that we could be seen. <laughs> you know, my uh, my father's Jamaican, so I'm connected to the Windrush and to that you know that immigration that happened in 1948 um, through my grandmother. So for me, it was very important that these people connected to, you know, there's an older woman representing the younger man. So it's kind of talking about the generational element as well. And they're, and they're standing next to one another, not necessarily connected. You know, they're not necessarily like relatives or together, but they are standing in the same place. So you get to see them, you get to experience this idea of, of a history in perhaps in the older character and a future in terms of the younger character, perhaps. And so in a hundred years, I would, I would love an audience to perhaps have a totally different understanding of who they are. Perhaps we've made so much progress, but perhaps there's been so much change and and positive progress. You know, we'd be talking about what famous individual they might actually be. You know, from, <laughs> because people always want, you know assume that these figures are representations of someone famous, because that's pretty much the only way you become a monument is by doing something better than any of us. You know, normal people. So, you know, if if our understandings of what people uh, can look like who achieve amazing things has expanded to, you know, effortlessly include those two individuals, and you know, people can have some sort of discussion about who they might be. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure I wouldn't roll over in my grave in a hundred years' time. If I can throw out another thing that occurs to me, uh, the you know, much of the history of the art in the 20th century has been a, a renunciation of beauty. It's all, beauty is almost considered kind of kitsch among a lot of artists. Now. It, Thomas's work, they are, these are, these are human beings. I mean, they're, they're absolutely realistic and I dare say they're, they're, they're beautiful, quite beautiful, but in an interesting way in that these aren't, um, you know, fashion model figures. They're fully clothed and, and which, which is a good thing. Uh, you know, unlike a lot of the classical depictions of beauty where you have perfect naked bodies, but there is something I dare say quite beautiful about them. And I'm Wondering if that was, uh, I, I don't know if that's considered retrograde in the art world, but how I'm not embarrassing you, Thomas, by calling them beautiful. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> They're ordinary people, but the, the effect is, I, I think, quite uh, uh, entrancing. Thank you. And, and that's, I mean, that's a really good observation because, I, strangely, when I first started to, to sculpt the figure, and that was back in 2002, I think, it was definitely not in vogue. 
it was the, the questions from I think my tutors were like, why, why would you do this? You know, <laughs> the expectation was, you know, I, I'd, and also because I'd come from a different sort of uh, type of work, and suddenly there I was trying to learn how to sculpt, you know, a head or a, a, a full figure eventually. And it's because I saw the power in that figure and the way it connected to people, perhaps in that kind of the power that the icon has. You know, I wanted to tap into that, but using like this, this, the type of figure that I, I do now, not just about the race, but in terms of, yeah, the, the kind of the physicality. So they're not this sort of Greek perfect uh, aesthetic. They're not even the kind of a Roman take on a Greek aesthetic or, a, you know, the, a kind of athlete. There, there were ways to, to include people and yet not fall victim to the same uh, trappings or the same desires to be seen in a very particular way, to be seen at your best. If, if only I can just perfect my physique, then I'll be valued. It was about trying to make a very strong point that you as you are should be and, and somewhere out there you are valued and, and you are seen. And for me, that was a really powerful kind of conversation to have with myself in terms of resisting my own urge to kind of, yeah, sculpt these forms and, um, and to see the beauty and the, and the, the, the kind of the significance in a pot belly, <laughs> in a, in, <laughs> yeah. you know, in a, in a slouch because, and that in the face of everything else that we're having kind of, we're being bombarded with in terms of imagery of what we're supposed to be, you know, everything's telling us that we're not good enough so that we buy more effectively or so that we, you know, go down some sort of coerced route of behavior. What about if we did feel good about ourselves? Because I think, you know, it, it, when people feel good about themselves, they tend to open up more towards other people. And they tend to be less scared about their truth being exposed and their vulnerabilities being taken advantage of. And they tend to be able to extend themselves to others. I know I certainly feel like that. When I feel good about myself, I feel way more able to be kind to someone else. I feel way more willing to listen to the full version of someone's story to perhaps say, yeah, maybe I was wrong, you know? So if, if, on, if in my own kind of experience, I'm like, that's those small elements of behavior can be changed by just sort of accepting yourself then if you try to expand that and, and push that out into the world i mean you know i'm one artist but like other people can do it as well we can do it in everything that's happening so i think um yeah it was it was a strategy from the beginning is what i'm trying to say Stephen. and mm-hmm. um, I, and i appreciate that you've seen it thomas one last question here for you um and this speaks to the strategy question uh so a strategy for what how does your art, <laughs> you think, uh, speak to this notion of progress and about the, the discourse around who gets to participate and be a part of progress? That is such a good question. It's a very difficult question to answer um, concisely, I think. Progress for what? I, it comes back to my kind of slightly mobile definition of what progress is. For me, it is, it's a multitude of things, progress. Um, so in terms of you know my direct ex- experience, the people I talk to, the things I see, that would be one measure for me of, of progress. Like I said to you before, you know, when people look at, from 100 years from now, when people look at the works, if race is the first thing that they mention, then that part of progress hasn't been made. But if they're, if they're willing to accept you know, the, the, the postures of those individuals, you know, the, the non-heroic posture as acceptable, then that's some progress. It's a kind of progress. I think we get into like definitions of types of progress, perhaps. Ultimately, what, what, yeah, what am I trying to do? As an artist, that's a, it's a big question to ask yourself because you can tie yourself up in knots. And I tend to try and look at the thing in front of me and, and deal with the questions that I'm asking in a particular piece of work 
sometimes we're just very formal questions about material, about form. But I think if we're extending that into ideas of concept and ambition for for progress, then I think, you know, ultimately, I want us to be, as, as humans, I want us to be more understanding of one another. And, and I, I want people's lived experiences to be more reflective of our ideal of progress. You know, when we say that progress is being made, then I want a variety of people to be able to say, yes, I agree with this. Yes, I can experience this. Um, you know, my neighbor experiences this because at the moment it feels like progress is being made, but within particular groups. And I think, you know, there's always room for improvement. Stephen, any last thoughts? Uh, I, I find the, the, the work as sculpture inspiring precisely because it's such a delightful inversion of the cultural history of using oversized bronze monuments to kind of deify military heroes. You know, I, I have no doubt that Vladimir Putin would be very happy if he was immortalized, <laughs> you know, naked with a discus or on a, on a, on a horseback. Yeah, uh, top of the cup on a horse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But you know, Thomas would do a sculpture of one of the you know an ordinary Ukrainian, and yeah. you know, that that's really the contrast. It's a it is a different uh, uh, system of values. It's a, a system that I think conduces to, to to progress, makes makes progress possible. Is that we can we consider the dignity and the humanity of ordinary people in the subway staring at their phones. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you so much. I'm Jeff Chang. And you've been on a journey to Edge of Reason. Join us next week when we speak with Swiss visual artist Pipilani Rist and Museum of Contemporary Art curator Anna Katz to explore how ideas around inquiry shape the passion and purpose of their work. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, like and review on Apple Podcast and help spread the word about our series to other listeners like you. 